Welcome to impactboom.org. We search the globe to find the people, stories, ideas, and inspiration to help you create maximum positive impact. Each week, Impact Boom brings you thought-provoking interviews with world-leading practitioners passionate about creating positive social change. These designers, social entrepreneurs, educators, innovators, thinkers, and doers share their projects, initiatives, thoughts, and insights on creating a better world. You can find all the stories, links, and other great content at impactboom.org. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter for the latest updates, or subscribe to the newsletter or on iTunes. Thanks for listening to episode 65 of Impact Boom. My name's Tom Allen, and I'm passionate about bringing you the latest interviews and insights to help you create positive social impact. Today, we're speaking with Ingrid Burkett. Ingrid is Director of Learning and Systems Innovation at the Australian Centre for Social Innovation. She's a social designer, designing processes, products, and knowledge that deepens social impact and facilitates social innovation. She's contributed to the design of policy and processes in a diversity of fields, including community development, local economic development, disability, procurement, and social investment. Ingrid has worked in the community sector, government, and with the private sector, and believes that each of these sectors has a valuable role to play in social innovation. Ingrid was previously Managing Director at Node, a social business focused on design for social innovation. She has worked in social innovation and design positions in the community development finance sector and in overseas development. She is a past president and honorary ambassador of the International Association for Community Development and is committed to fostering an international dialogue about designing innovative solutions with and for communities. Ingrid has also held a number of university fellowship positions, including most recently as Social Design Fellow for the Centre for Social Impact at the University of New South Wales and UWA. Ingrid is also a practising artist and graphic designer. Ingrid has qualifications in graphic design, social work, business and community economic development. She has particular expertise in the design of economic processes and products and is recognised internationally for her work in community economic development and finance. Though these are particular specialities, Ingrid has the skills to design processes, products, services and systems in a wide range of fields and disciplines and believes that the design of social innovation requires a capacity to think in creative, cross-disciplinary and systemic ways. So on today's podcast, we'll discuss Ingrid's insights into the Australian social innovation sector. We'll get Ingrid's thoughts and perspective on social innovation opportunities, and we'll hear what Ingrid believes is the best way to tackle complex community issues. Ingrid, thanks very much for joining us. It's my pleasure. So to keep things off, Ingrid, could you please share a little bit about your background and what led you to a career specialising in social design and social innovation? So you've just heard a lot, probably too much about my background. It's an interesting background. <laughs> it is an interesting background, and I guess it only really makes sense looking backwards. At the time, I studied social work um, as my first degree, but also had an interest in arts and, and mm. um, graphic design in particular, and couldn't really see how those two related to each other. Yeah. Um, and I guess I, I started working in the social work area in community development. And I was a few years in and I thought, oh my God, I can't see how I'm going to ever make a real difference in this space. Mm. Um, and I could, I looked down the corridor of my life and thought, is this really 
what I want to do, do I want to keep working inside these systems and organisations that really are just putting band-aids on things. Yeah. And I decided, no, that's not what I wanted to do. I went off and I thought maybe business is the answer. So hence I did um, a business degree and spent some time in business, but it always ended up being small business, mm. cooperative, social yep. enterprise. And, you know, I, I love that space, but I also can see the limitations of that in terms of the scale of impact, mm. yep. um, which I'm really interested in. So eventually I ended up being in a position where I had the opportunity to invent my own roles mm. and they were always combinations of design, social work and business. Mm. And so that's what um, I have found in the last decade or so to be a really good combination mm. of skills. Yeah, fantastic. Mm. So as Director of Learning and Systems Innovation then at the Australian Centre for Social Innovation, what sort of projects are you involved in which are creating positive social change? Mm. I read this question and I thought, we're involved in a lot of different areas. Some great projects. Um, some really fantastic projects. Whether I can claim that they're currently already producing social change, I'm not so sure. Mm. We have the aim and the intention to create social change, but I'm very cognizant of the fact that that takes a lot of people and it takes quite a long time yeah. often yeah. Um, for that social change to be realised. So, I mean, we, some of the areas that we're working in, we're doing a lot of work in the place-based disadvantage space, mm -hmm. but looking at places really as systems. Mm -hmm. So what is happening in some of Australia's most disadvantaged communities is that there has been the same sort of um, outcomes for about 30 years. Nothing mm. much has shifted, despite the fact that we've invested millions of dollars in those communities. I'm interested in where that money flows, but I'm also interested in what are the systems that are operating inside those places that are actually creating barriers for change? Mm. And can we approach that place-based work from that systemic lens to unlock some of those barriers. Mm. So that's one area that we're looking at. We're also looking at um, ageing yep. and the future of ageing. So what does it mean you know, for the new generation, the baby boomers, um, to age? Because they have, they have very different expectations mm. about what it means to age. Yep. And then the generation after them um, has different ideas again. So our concept is changing, and so we need to create the systems that will enable people to age well mm -hmm. into the future. So we're, we're working on various processes, various services, yep. various products um, in that space. And then there's, you know, the area, so going from ageing to children and families, um, we're doing a lot of work in the child protection space. Mm. So we tend to focus on issues and areas that maybe other agencies, other people interested in human-centred design think of as too risky. Yep. We're actually really fascinated by those areas and what human-centred design can add to those very risky, really tricky issues like how do we actually ensure that yep. children and families can thrive. Mm. And then there's um, what a colleague of ours calls the boring revolution. What's that? 
the boring revolution is about all of trying to create change in those areas of society that are really considered quite boring, like things like procurement okay. yep. um, or commissioning yep. that are actually central because that's how that unlocks mm. the flow of money and resources. Yep. But people, you know, say, oh, I'm a procure, I'm interested in procurement and that's the best party stopper yeah <laughs> don't ever say that at a barbecue but we're we're fascinated in those sort of things the same mm. with investment like how do we unlock that money so that we can actually create real change mm. um, so that's a little snapshot of the range of things that we're we're interested in taxi. Mm. it's certainly some really broad you know, wide range of projects there and just tackling some really important issues. Hmm. So what do you believe are the fundamental ingredients necessary then when designing alongside communities or with communities to ensure that the outcomes produce positive social impact? Hmm. I think they're, they're more intricate and probably um, less fancy than people believe they are. Hmm. They're not particularly technical, but I would say things like curiosity, Curiosity is a very um, remarkably underplayed quality mm. that you know is fundamental to addressing some of these issues. Yeah. If we are not curious and we think we've already got all the answers, yeah. um, and we're not doggedly curious about yeah. creating change, then we're not going to be able to create that change. Yeah. Then you know things like tenacity. They are not simple mm. issues and we need to be tenacious yep. um, if we're going to create change. Um, and then the ability to listen and observe. They might seem like really simple things, but it always surprises me how difficult it actually is to sit down and really listen and observe what is happening in some of those places and how do we bridge the very different interpretations of mm. how to create change. Yeah, certainly, without putting our glasses on and seeing it through our lens, right? Absolutely, mm. absolutely. So, yeah, then I would say some of the technical things like, you know, the ability to actually facilitate people mm. and the ability to interpret data yep. um, and know how to use data to create innovation real change. Mm, yeah, some interesting qualities there. So what processes, tools or methodologies do you commonly use throughout your projects? So we we have been very focused on human-centered design yep. approaches and that has been because really design is a, a framework that you can use to rigorously create tested change yep. relatively quickly mm and with people yep. so that's that's a really great framework as we have developed further we've come to recognize though that it's important to be a little bit um, method agnostic rather than dogmatic yeah about you know there's a lot of designers out there at the moment who are you know i'm a designer so i can change the world yeah. <laughs> um without recognizing that that actually requires a lot of other tools and methodologies mm. like ethnography yep. like um, the ability to really sit down and facilitate conversations yep. and dialogue which is a skill that say social workers or practitioners bring into mm. that picture yeah so yeah I think it's important to recognize the tools that are in um, that 
that can add, but to see those in a broader landscape mm. rather than saying this discipline yep. is going to change the world. Sure. That said, I think the most important framework is that whole idea of let's try, test and learn. So, you know, having the capacity to prototype, for example, mm. is incredibly yeah. important because that enables us to really move into action quickly yeah. and to really test out what is going to work and to maintain that level of curiosity. Mm. Yeah, fantastic. So what do you believe then are the most common reasons that these types of projects fail? I would say that for me it's about that people spend too long in planning before they get into testing the assumptions. Yeah, yeah. Um, so if we spend all that time in planning, we could be planning something that actually is not going to work. Mm. So how do we move more quickly into that prototyping mindset where we actually test in practice yep. um, what the assumptions are that we're building into mm. processes? So I think that that is definitely one of the things that I see that needs to, to happen in order for those projects not to fail. Mm. And then the other one would be not involving people or not respecting the expertise that lived experience mm. brings. Yep. So not involving the people who are actually living with the issues yep. and seeing those people as offering as much, if different, expertise mm. as professionals means that we are coming at these issues in a way that um, often is full of our own yep. lenses or our own assumptions yep. about what, what those issues mm. constitute. Yeah, yep, mm. certainly. So what advice then would you give to the budding social innovators out there <laughs> who are keen to contribute to tackling inequality in our communities? I mean, you've spoken about prototyping quickly, um, mm. about you know not putting our assumptions on on how we view things, about getting the experience of the people who are in a, a specific situation. Mm. Would you like to add anything else? Um, I think those are really the core, the core things. I mean, I would say, you know, get out there and try, but leave the ego at the door. We don't need a lot of new heroes in this space. Yep. What we need is people who are tenacious, um, people who have a really well-developed capacity to listen mm. and connect um, people in. So I think those are the core skills. Um, whether you can learn those uh, in any other space than doing it, I'm yep. not sure. Mm. You can certainly hone your skills um, as a social innovator through formal learning, yep. but the best learning is on-the-job yep. learning. Certainly. Certainly. So how then have you seen the design and social innovation sector transform and change over the last five years or so? And where do you see it heading? Um, I think it's changed fundamentally in the last five years or so. Those of us who have been involved in social innovation in Australia in particular um, for longer than that, were a, we were a fairly lonely crew and we knew most of the people who were also... Yeah involved and interested in social innovation. Now, you know, that has spread and, and people all over the place are very interested and passionate mm -hmm. in innovation and learning um, and building capacity in that, which is great, but it also creates a few challenges because suddenly 
everybody is innovating and yeah. everybody's um, a designer everybody's a designer <laughs> and you know things like we we do a lot of co-design which is really just fancy word for collaborative design yeah. designing with people co-design has become you know the everything mm. everyone is doing co-design and everything that involves any interaction with people is now called co-design yeah well, there's a very big difference between co-design and consultation. Mm, yeah. And so the fact that there's much more interest in innovation means that we have to be really clear about what it is that we mean by some of these terms, concepts, mm. practices and tools yeah. because otherwise we just end up with mush. And if our aim is to really create positive change and positive impact, mm. then we need a degree of rigor in how we apply yep. these tools and methodologies. Mm, absolutely. I certainly agree. So if we move towards government now, mm. how do you believe government might most effectively engage communities in order to tackle these complex issues? Is it through co-design approaches? Yeah, I think definitely um, co-design has a very big role to play. Um, government is critically important in this uh, process, both as a catalyst and a creator of the conditions mm. for innovation, but they have to do this work in partnership. Yeah. Um, I've seen lots of instances of government um, having the best intentions in the world, but because they're so tied mm. to political imperatives, it is incredibly difficult for them to create innovation on their mm. own mm. Um, without being in partnership with both communities and people who work alongside communities. Mm, yeah. So partnership in that innovation process for government is critical. Yeah, certainly. So are there any countries that you believe are doing this really well, that are really leading the charge when it comes to social innovation in general? And if you do think there are any other countries, what are they doing that we in Australia or other countries around the world can adopt? Certainly, I mean, social innovation has been around in places like the UK and Europe for a long, much longer, it has a much longer history than it does in Australia. Yep. And I think we can learn a lot from those countries. We can also learn what not to do. Mm. I think in the UK in particular, people got very caught up with, you know, the funding of government using government funding to catalyze social innovation and whilst that was good to start with um, it also led to not very risky not very creative not very disruptive ways of yeah. thinking about systems mm. because you were really dependent on you know that tap of funding yeah. Yeah. being left on mm. when that got turned off there was a lot of cynicism about um, how do we create innovative environments. So I would say we can learn from that. I mean, I think we should look closer to home. I've been mm. really inspired by a lot of things that are happening in New Zealand. Yep. And, you know, they have uh, been through some very interesting political times. Um, they're a small country, so 
you know, you can see what's happening systemically yep. a lot more clearly. Yep. But there's also a fantastic spirit of social innovation and they've almost created curiosity at a cultural level mm. um, that I think can be inspiring. And their bicultural approach to uh, things like social innovation is also critically important for us to really think about when we think about, you know, some of the most tricky, most difficult mm. social innovation challenges we face yep. are actually about Aboriginal people mm -hmm. and our relationship with Aboriginal people yep. as non-Indigenous people. Mm. So learning from that bicultural approach yep. to social innovation, I think, is is critical. Yeah, I think it's a fantastic insight there. So what inspiring projects or initiatives then have you come across recently which you were really inspired by? I find this really quite difficult because... You come across I'm inspired every day. by... <laughs> projects all the time and you know I, I not to sound egotistical but you know I'm inspired by all of the work that we're involved in mm. across Australia um, but I'll go back to New Zealand I I'm really inspired by a lot of the place-based work that they're doing so I've just reviewed some work that's happening in South Auckland mm. with um, the Southern Initiative and the Co-Design Lab there, yep. um, who are combined. And I'm inspired by their rigour mm. and their commitment to really using human-centred design to look at some of the fundamentals of what needs to change yep. in order to close the gap between yeah. South Auckland and the rest of Auckland yep. from a social and an economic perspective. Mm. So I think we can learn a lot from that sort of an approach. Yep. We often shy away from, we call it social innovation. Um, I'm much more interested in the linkage between social and economic innovation and not separating out, mm. as we have in Australia, if we look at our innovation policies, separating out commercial and economic innovation from social innovation. Mm. It's critically important to our future that those be considered as a whole, yep. not as two separate things, one of which social innovation often gets left off the agenda. Um, yeah, absolutely. Mm. So to finish off then, Ingrid, what books would you recommend to the listeners? I also found this question hard. <laughs> Feel free um, to list 10 if you wish. Oh God, I could provide a whole uh, library. A whole library. <laughs> I, I go back to some of the the really fundamentals. Um, so the big book of social innovation, I think, you know, coming out of, was it Nesta or, or Jeff Mulgan anyway, yeah. was one of the co-authors from the UK. I think that's a really interesting and inspiring sort of treatise on mm. social innovation. I mean, from a, from a toolbox and a methodological perspective, I love the work of Liz Sanders. Mm. Um, so the conviviality toolbox yeah. uh, is one of my favourites. There's so many amazing resources mm. out there for people to to grab hold of. Yeah. Um, just open Google and jump in is mm. my advice. Yeah. Um, 
I think those <laughs> those other two, of which have both been mentioned before as well, have got some really interesting points and a great to point the listeners towards those. Ingrid, it's been really a pleasure to speak to you today. Thanks so much for sharing your time and experience and we'll most certainly look forward to touching base again in the future. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Impact Boom. You'll find links to the initiatives, people and resources mentioned in this podcast on impactboom.org. Please leave your comments below and remember, we'll be publishing fresh inspiration and insights to help you create positive impact every week on the website, Facebook page and Twitter.